Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Forward Together podcast. I'm Jared Dean. I'm joined today, as always, by Paul Gosling. Paul, how's the for me today? I'm enjoying the Irish summer, Gerard. Ah, good on you. Aye, so, is it raining? <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So, today, Paul, we're continuing our conversations with the political leaders um, to, to round off our third series. And who is it that we're, we're having a chat with today? Okay, this is the second in our series of leaders of the Irish political parties, the Northern Irish political parties. Uh, and today we're talking with Naomi Long, the leader of the Alliance Party, who is also, of course, Minister of Justice. She's also a former MP and a former MEP. So actually one of the most senior political leaders in Northern Ireland. Okay, And it was a really interesting conversation that you had where um, I've, you start off by asking about the past, as you do with every of all these conversations. And Noam is really, really clear on the fact that violence just is not an acceptable option here. Absolutely. And, and we, we do, I think, have to see the connection between the past and the present in the sense that because violence has been seen as a legitimate way of addressing issues, um, it, we still have violence on the streets. And the conversations that I had with Naomi were at a time when we were having significant street disorder within Northern Ireland. Uh, and there is, I'm afraid, this sense uh, that perhaps you don't get in many other places, that, that violence is, is part of what we are, part of our society. And, and we really need to move away from that. Yeah, and she touches on role models within communities. You know, she talks about, you know, the famous May blood, where you want to be when you grow up um, conversation, um, where the child at the school is asked what do you want to be when you grow up and this is an ex-prisoner because they're the, the people that are held in high esteem and, and communities that's something that we we obviously have to change we have to change that approach and, and it's something that we've talked about many times in these podcasts Gerard. i mean it's, it's something that uh, the alec mcbride made very clear in, in one of those previous ones about mm -hmm. his unhappiness that within some loyalist areas the the only role model who's made good, who's got rich, is a leader of a paramilitary organisation. And we need to give people a different form of hope, a different form of aspiration within their communities. And we need to ensure that, in particular, the, the schools that have high levels of pupils that come from poor or deprived backgrounds, uh, and it's particularly an issue about working class boys, uh, not just in Protestant, also in Republican communities, that actually we need to give them hope. Uh, and I, I think that some of the conversations we've had about careers guidance and using that as a mechanism, a means of persuading boys that they actually have a career if they actually do well, uh, not necessarily academically, but alternatively vocationally, skill-based, that actually we need to do things around that. Yeah, and I liked Naomi's conversation around the fact that we need to look at maybe talking to parents before children even get to school, parents who themselves might have fallen through that, you know, the educational gap, if you like, or, or people from communities that don't value education as, as highly as maybe they could. Because Naomi goes on to talk about transfer systems and how it can lead to like a second layer of deprivation when people don't get into schools, they don't build the networks that they might need. We just need to look at everything here, particularly around education. Absolutely, yes. I, I think networking is a really important part of this, but so is preschool education, a preschool experience for children. I mean, mm -hmm. because 
if you look statistically, um, really the, the, the age group where we really may need to make a difference is with children's experience before they even start school. And, and that's one of the things that we need to deal with. And that very much reflects the experience of children within their communities and whether they have access to resources and whether they have access to expectations as well within their early life. Well, let's hear the conversation with Naomi Noy. Naomi Long, thank you very much indeed for doing this. Um, one of the ideas that came forward uh, previously in discussions was the idea that perhaps there needs to be a level of recognition by some of the political parties of the mistakes that were made in the past. So in the same way that David Cameron apologised for Bloody Sunday, is there a need for some of the political parties to apologise for their role either in the violence or else for perhaps stoking up violence by the, the words that were used? I mean, do you think that's helpful in any way? Um, I think in, in theory, yes, it would be helpful um, because I think that there has been in many ways um, an additional layer of tension that we have within the political system moving forward because people continue to try to defend past actions and to caveat what happened in the past as being different to the present. And that causes offence and challenge um, all the time. And I think that therefore an acceptance that um, you know, there was wrong done and that people should acknowledge that would perhaps make some of the conversation around the past and legacy a lot easier. Um, I think some people find it quite difficult for those who have in different ways been involved in creating the conditions in which violence um, was able to flourish um, or then make demands about how we should deal with legacy. And I think some people find that offensive and, and hurtful. But I think more importantly, it makes it harder for us um, as a society to make a really strong case to people today that violence is not acceptable and that the fact that you're not happy with the political situation or that you aren't content um, with, with the outcome of different decisions it doesn't give you an excuse to resort to violence because if we continue with the narrative um, that, that it was okay at one time but not now, and then the question is, well, why then and not now? And what is the distinct difference between pre-1998 and post-1998? Yes, the Good Friday Agreement, but many would say that's a further iteration of a number of other agreements that were tried before that and didn't hold. So I think that there's a genuine challenge around trying to sustain a culture of lawfulness in a context where people continue to um, not just commemorate their dead, but actually at times glorify the actions um, that were taken in a period of our history where the law was not respected. And I think it's also a, a, a difficult conversation to have with young people, because for many young people, they see those that are um, lauded and treated as heroes in their community are people who were involved in activity that, that was illegal, that was dangerous, that resulted in huge amounts of harm. And yet these people are lauded as heroes um, to be emulated and copied. And it's then very difficult, I think, to say to those young people, but obviously we think it would be a destructive thing to do now. I mean, I think it doesn't in any way undermine people's um, respect for their dead um, or 
understanding of the complexities of the situation to acknowledge these were not good times for any of us, that these were not um, situations we would ever want to be in again, but also to acknowledge that actually there was great harm done. And I think that the narrative around that sometimes becomes very um, difficult when you see people um, disregard, for example, the needs of victims of violence right across the, the community um, in favour of trying to defend the actions of the people who they saw as their heroes in those situations. I think that's quite, I think that's quite difficult. But I remember also Linda Irvine saying to me that responsibility wasn't just for those who were participated, but also those that stood on the side and, and encouraged them on, that, that applauded them. And that reminds me actually of one of the, the videos I saw on social media during the recent riots where I saw a fairly yeah. young woman applauding and waving on very young rioters. And I do wonder the extent to which wider society has to take responsibility for actions. I think that is true. I think that those who encourage um, violence, who, um, who, in my view, actually groom young people into violence and support and encourage that. I mean, apart from the fact that I think it's child abuse, frankly, to, to do what people were doing in, in those circumstances. Um, but I think that they do have a responsibility. I've never honestly bought the argument that those who who did nothing, those who just got on with their lives, kind of are culpable for what happened because they didn't do enough to, to improve the situation. Because I think that that's a big burden to place on people who were trying to live normal lives in an abnormal time. And I think it had, had it not been for the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland who just tried to get on with life, um, we could have been in a much worse situation. So I don't think it's as simple as saying that everyone has to be sorry for something or that people should you know, acknowledge that if they didn't do anything to stop it, they were part of the problem. But I think that those who actively encouraged um, violence, who excused violence, um, who engaged in violence, um, or those who, I suppose, by not calling out that violence um, when they had a platform on which to do it and kind of gave tacit acceptance to it, I do think that those people have a particular responsibility. Um, so it's not to transfer responsibility for the worst things that happened. I mean, I've, I've always said people have a personal responsibility. If you pick up a gun, if you plant a bomb, if you shoot someone, if you attack someone in your community, you made a personal choice and you're not absolved of that because others cheered you on and encouraged you. But equally, you can't ignore the crowd and the peer pressure. Um, and the role that that played in how things developed um, and the inflammatory words um, that created the conditions where young people felt that they were doing the right thing based on what they were hearing. They were then doing the right thing to respond in a violent manner. And I mean, I was really struck by interviews even just in the last uh, couple of weeks um, with young people who had been involved at one level or other in some of the trouble um, that that's sparked. And one young man, very articulate young man said, you know, I don't know about the protocol or the funeral. I don't know the detail, but I know that my community is constantly being told we're losing to Sinn Féin and that's not right and it's not fair and that's why I'm angry. Now, you know, I would argue that that isn't true either, but if you hear it all the time from the people who are your leaders, you will believe it. Um, over a period of time, it will become the narrative that you accept. 
And so I think those who create those narratives need to take responsibility for the fact, not that they are to blame that a young person goes out and, and, and does something wrong. They can't, obviously, um, they didn't tell the young person to do that. Um, but they do have to take responsibility for creating a narrative that then leads young people into that space where they're where they're making those choices because i don't think it's it's enough to simply say well individual choice is everything i do think we have to accept that the creation of a society where those things were deemed to be acceptable was a wider responsibility than just those who engaged in violence and you use the phrase child abuse just now and i was reading recently the freya mcclement's book uh, children of the troubles and you read about the 15 year olds that participated, who blew themselves up and died as a result of that. And the phrase that kept on coming to my mind was war crimes, because if that had happened in Central Africa, we would have said that is a war crime. Yeah. Well, we, we condemn, you know, we condemn people for child soldiers and we say yes. how wrong it is that, you know, young or young people are being recruited into paramilitary organisations in far-flung places and being used um, as kind of military fodder. And yet, we see the same dynamics happen here where children from a very young age are groomed by criminal gangs, essentially, um, and engaged in activity that they shouldn't be engaged in. And there are so many, you know, there are so many opportunities, I think, for intervention around that. I think it's a safeguarding issue for our young people. Um, and I think we need to change the narrative around this because until we recognise that whether it's a paramilitary shooting, uh, sort of paramilitary style shooting, or whether it's the kind of grooming that goes on where young people are emulating their elders in a community, all of those things are a form of child abuse because we're exposing young people to to things that young people should never be exposed to. We're, they're at a very vulnerable point in their lives um, and a very... Um, a very I suppose they're they're open to a lot of influence in those formative years. And so, you know, we do need to look at the messages as communities that we send out to, to children, to young people. I was always struck by May Blood told a story of going to a school um, in, in West Belfast um, in a loyalist community. And she asked one of the kids there, a young boy, literally a primary school, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, an ex-prisoner. And she said, why? And he said, because that's it's a good thing because everybody looks up to them and they've got a nice car. And, you know, so for him as a young working class loyalist living in that area, for him, the, the hero of the story was the ex-prisoner. Of course, we all know that being a prisoner is, is not a walk in the park. Um, and the things that you do to get there will mark you for the rest of your life psychologically, as well as in terms of your life opportunities and chances. But for that young child, that seemed like a, a, a route out of poverty, a route out of whatever his community was. And he saw that person as, as a, a, the kind of hero in the community. He saw adults and others defer to that individual. And so for him, being an ex-prisoner was, was a status symbol. And we need to start dispelling those myths. And that isn't to say that people who are ex-prisoners are worthless, because I don't believe that as particularly in my current role, I'm a believer in rehabilitation and the fact that people can go on and make a contribution. But I'd much rather they did that without ever having to pass through the justice system and without ever having to go to prison. Um, and we should be trying to encourage our young people to see their aspirations in different ways 
and constructive ways that don't involve actually coming into conflict with the justice system and certainly that don't involve having to do a period of time in jail first in order to establish their credibility in the community. And I think that there is a genuine challenge for all of us in terms of the language we use when we talk about paramilitary organisations um, and organised crime gangs and all of those things. There is an onus on all of us to check our language and not make it romanticised, not make it glamorous um, and not make it something that is attractive to young people because it's incredibly dangerous. But that does raise wider questions about what we need to do about our schooling system, because I think we can probably both agree that many working class kids, in particular boys, are failed by the current system or at least don't succeed through the current system. So how should we reform and how should we give ambition, aspiration to, to young teenagers uh, and older teenagers? I mean, what reform should we have in the education system that gives them hope, gives them skills, gives them better careers? Well, I mean, I think it actually starts earlier than school. I think it starts at the earliest stage um, before nursery and preschool. It starts with support for families and actually dealing with some of the educational underachievement that is embedded um, within families where you have young people with young children and those young people themselves have fallen through the net of education. I'm very conscious of when you look at our prison population, how many people that are left school with no qualifications, how many people left school unable to read and write beyond a, a, a primary two child. And I mean, if you can't function with literacy and numeracy in society, then your opportunities to, to better your life are limited and therefore crime and risk-taking become a bigger part of your life and a, a more significant challenge. So for me, education is crucial. Early intervention, supporting families, creating the right kind of environment um, in those communities, but also changing attitudes to education. And I grew up in a working class loyalist community where education was seen as a bit soft. Um, so it was fine for girls, but like boys should be working with their hands because the, the kind of narrative in our community growing up was, you know, the men worked in the shipyard, they worked in shorts, they worked in factories, they brought home money, but they did manual labor. And it was all right for girls to read books, but that wasn't for that wasn't for boys. And with the decline of that industry in those in those areas, we in many ways have that post-industrial um, landscape that you see in parts of England that also suffer from deprivation. But we have it overlaid then with all of the sectarian divides that we have in our society. And so I firmly believe that we need, first of all, more integrated education, because I think that by bringing people together and removing the political and religious divides, we can actually start to empower our community in terms of building stronger relationships and more stability. But I also believe that we should not be having selective education in our society because increasingly over time it has become socially selective. And it's not that I believe that, that, of course, some children are brighter than others. And I mean, I'm not one of these people who believes that, you know, that there are no differences in terms of academic ability. Of course there are. But there shouldn't be a difference in terms of people's ability to access education, but also to access the social networks that are so important in terms of opportunity and aspiration in later life. I, I, was, I went to primary school with kids who were from my neighbourhood, working class, East Belfast neighbourhood. I was fortunate at a very stable upbringing um, and my parents were that bit older um, than average. And I think that gave a stability to my, my upbringing that a lot of my um, peers didn't have. I went to grammar school. 
So I passed my 11 plus, I went to grammar school and suddenly, you know, the parents of my my friends in school were doctors, teachers, solicitors, um, dentists, um, you know, and the people that I went to school with are now those people. And they went to school with me and I'm a government minister and an MLA and all the rest of it. And we have networks. So if I have a quick query about something, I'll know somebody who's a solicitor. If I have a question to ask um, about a health thing, I'll know somebody who's a doctor. And you know, you have those networks. You, you don't only deprive a child of education when you separate them at 11. You deprive them of those social networks. So if you, generally speaking, go to secondary school, the people that you go to school with, won't have the same access to those um, those kind of informal networks after school as well. And so what you end up with is a, a second layer of deprivation. So not only may they not get the same opportunities educationally, but they then also won't have the same enrichment of their social circle that will allow them in later life to be able to call on those relationships if they need a bit of informal advice or want to chat something over with somebody. So they end up having to pay for that that experience where people who are already advantaged have an additional advantage. So it embeds that advantage, I think, and it's really unfair. Um, I think we need also to bear in mind that, you know, when I went to when I went to um to grammar school and my I mean, my mum was really supportive, but my mum had never gone beyond 14 at school. Neither had my dad. So neither of them had any experience of me learning at secondary level or going to university or any of that. A lot of my aspirations came from talking to other pupils in the school whose parents had been to university, talking to their mums and dads when we were at their house and, you know, them saying to me, what are you going to do? Where would you like to go? And my parents were largely led by my ambitions. But if you take children out of that and they never have that opportunity to talk to other people who are heading to university, who that's expected of them, then who gives those young people the aspiration? Who says to them, what about university? Have you thought about doing a degree? What about an apprenticeship? Have you thought that might be a good route? Who does that if you don't have those informal conversations? So I actually think that splitting our young people at 11 in the way we do just so rigidly is is really holding back whole sections of our community. And I see it in the area where I grew up. Um, the numbers were already declining in terms of the number of people sitting the 11 plus and passing it when I did it. And that wasn't yesterday or the day before. And now those numbers just continue to drop and to drop and to drop. And it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where people just think this is not for us and they opt out. And unfortunately, I think kids get that message whether it's directly or whether it's indirectly, that this is not for us and for them that means education. And so they opt out of education. So I think major reform in education, but for me, um, I'm really clear that doing away with the divisions in our education system and providing an inclusive um, and shared education system um, that is all ability um, would actually make a massive difference um, to academic achievement and attainment. Now, that lack of connectivity that you talk about also applies to the political sphere. So the question then is how we can improve democratic connectivity, whether we should actually have citizens' assemblies, whether there's other ways in which we can improve engagement, in particular, I think, perhaps amongst people from working class backgrounds, 
disadvantaged backgrounds who, who feel that politics are irrelevant to their lives. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important. Um, I, I think a lot of people um, feel in those communities that they're they're disengaged. They feel that politics isn't relevant to them, and yet it is, because many of them are much more reliant on public services than, than the average population. And so it's more important to them, actually, that these things are properly designed. I think it's also that if people do things over your head to you, rather than working with you, it's very disempowering. And it can be slightly patronising, frankly, in terms of how people engage with those communities. So I think things like co-design, which is something that the executive is trying to embrace, where we look at the services and say, how do we make these services work for you? Um, and we actually sit down with the service users as well as the, the experts and the specialists. But we give people the respect of saying, you've walked through the system. Where did it go right? Where did it go wrong? And I've spent quite a bit of time in justice, for example, talking to victims to say to them, what was it like going to court? How did you find it? You know, where were the problems? What went well? What didn't? How do we change the system so that when you're sitting here in a judgment about somebody who has, for example, killed your child, how do we change the system so when that judgment is read out, you understand it? You, un you, you, you understand how it's been arrived at and you're not sitting there in shock feeling that this is going over your head at a moment that is so important for you and your family. So I think it's really important that we engage um, with communities and give them the information and the resources to be able to make a valuable contribution. I think citizens' assemblies um, on kind of big ticket issues work. Um, I personally think that a, a standing citizens' assembly is probably less useful than convening them for specific purposes because I think people won't be interested in the full gamut of policy, but people will be very interested in some particular aspects of what's happening in their community. That's what we would generally find as politicians when we engage. You'll not get the same people at every meeting. If you've won about animal welfare, it will be a different group to people that want to talk about education. So I think allowing us to look at some of those big questions and actually putting them together um, in a citizens assembly and giving people honest information not the kind of pie in the sky what do you want us to do what would it look like I'm actually saying here's the resource we have this is how long this could take you know but also giving them the power to go back and say well why does it have to take that long why can't you do it this way you know I think just having that conversation I, I think citizens assemblies would be really important and I think as politicians, I mean, you know, there's a lot of debate about social media and engagement and so on, and I probably over-engage at times, but equally, I'm really conscious that even where people are arguing with me and really disagree with me, giving people the dignity of a response um, and saying to them, I get you're angry, I don't agree with you that it's my fault what has happened, but let me tell you why I don't think it is. I think people are owed that by their politicians. A lot of people use even their social media, which is probably the most accessible forum we have, to transmit but not receive. And so there's a lot of stuff pushed out from parties, and I totally understand why we do that. We want to get our message out. We want to show people what we're doing. Some people don't want to see that. What they want to do is say, why are you doing this specific thing that's annoying me? So even like this week, I've engaged with a, a lady on Twitter She's, she asked about prison visiting when in-person visits would return. I went back and explained why they hadn't and when they would. She came back and said, it's no good. You can't take a child with you. How's that any use to me? 
and I went back and explained why that was restricted. She then came back and explained, I've just had a baby, 12 weeks old, never seen his dad. And I said, okay, that's to me special circumstances. So speak to the governor and whatever. And from what was initially quite a hostile engagement, she came back and said, thank you. I just desperately want him to see the baby. And I said, look, I totally understand that. And I said, talk to the governor because I think there could be arrangements put in place. So, you know, sometimes you see somebody and you say, oh, that's credits and I'll just I'll, I'll ignore it. But sometimes if you engage with the person, there's a really valid concern and they might come across quite aggressively on social media because they're anxious and frustrated and they expect to be ignored. So they don't make any effort um, to, to kind of couch it nicely or be polite because they just expect they'll be ignored. When you actually engage, they're reasonable people who have just got genuine concerns. So I think there's a lot we can do as citizens' assemblies, co-design of services, but also just acting like decent human beings when people ask us questions can make a real difference because I think that's what they expect as the public from their politicians. And I mean, I know people think we're different as politicians to the public, but actually in other circumstances, we're members of the public and we've all sat on phone lines while the music played and nobody was answering us and got frustrated. So we do we do know what it is like to feel ignored, um, even as politicians. And I think we just need to bear that in mind when people are coming to us and computer says no, you know, that we need to spend a little bit of time telling people why there's a problem, what it is, and saying, can we find a new solution that will work for them? Because I think if you're not willing to do that, it, 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 you lose the engagement with people. Now, we mentioned citizens' assemblies, and it's in New Decade, New Approach, but it doesn't feel as if very much is happening, really, with that. Uh, are you frustrated? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I expect COVID makes it very difficult. Bringing yeah. people together has not been easy. And I think a citizens' assembly at its best has to be about people coming together and relationship building as well. So that has been a major um, a major stumbling block. Co-design has continued, though, and that is positive that departments are continuing along that track. But it very much depends on the department. So some departments will put an emphasis on bringing in uh, third sector partners, on bringing in service users um, and, and hearing those experiences. Other departments will tend to make pronouncements and you can see there's a distinct difference um, in how, uh, and how departments actually approach that. Um, I would like to say a more consistent approach, if I'm honest, um, and one that leans more towards engagement um, rather than just, as I say, transmitting information once decisions have been made. I think it needs to be an iterative process because Northern Ireland's a small enough place that actually we should be able to talk to our business leaders or our school leaders or whatever. It's not an insurmountable problem. You're not having to bring people together from an awfully wide range of places. And in some ways, social media can help with that um, and using Zoom and so on. You can bring people together really quickly without them having to move out of their living room as well. So there are opportunities as well as challenges in COVID. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would love to see, I would love to see us find something meaty and worthwhile and then hand it to the Citizens Assembly and say, let's see what you come up with. Because I think if you if you give people that information and let them work through it, you get good practical and pragmatic solutions most people um are pragmatic at core if you if you set people down and explain the constraints most people will work within the constraints and will come up with solutions um and i think we we don't give people enough credit for that partly because we don't give them enough information to inform their commentary 
and I think we're, that makes it always confrontational in politics. A final question, Naomi, which is about solutions. The Alliance Party believes, as I understand it, that departments should look at uh, adopting your pass policy, policy appraisal for sharing over separation. Can you perhaps give us a, a bit of a flavour of how that would work in, in practice? Well, the departments where we have had ministers have implemented it, and so we use it in our department. And I suppose what we want people to do, it's a very small step, but a step in the right direction. Breaking down the barriers in our society that have grown up over many, many years is not going to be a simple one-stage process. But one thing we can do is look at decisions that we're making, which may um, create separation in our society or embed it or enhance it in some way. And if we know a policy is going to do that, in the same way that if we know a policy will differentially impact on one section of the community from an equality or human rights perspective, we should mitigate against it. So if we know that something we're doing is either embedding division or creating a new division, we should be looking to say, how do we mitigate that? How do we do something so that we can say, yes, this policy is still the right policy, but we've done something to try and counteract the, the negative effect. And that would stop it getting worse. I suppose that's because that's the first stage to change in something is to stop it getting worse. And I suppose that comes really from our fundamental analysis around things like peace walls and so on, which obviously I'm really engaged with in the department now. But, you know, during the troubles, there were fewer peace walls than there are since. Uh, there have been more built since 1998 than there were beforehand. And that's hugely, hugely depressing. And at some point, we've got to find better solutions than walls to the disagreements between communities that exist. And that's challenging. So there's no question that's challenging. But I think the starting point is to say, well, okay, if we're going to have to create some barrier, some structure, some protection, we understand that in the immediate term, that's fine. What's our plan for walking that back so that isn't a permanent structure? What's our plan for putting in place community engagement and dialogue so that we can we can overcome the fundamental problem and then remo remove the structure. So rather than going into these things blindly and saying we'll never put up another peace wall or alternatively saying we're going to take them all down immediately, say we recognise that there will be times in that context where we might need to do something that actually enhances separation. What's our strategy for stopping that and working back? And I think there are lots of different ways within schools, with uh, education, um, social changes that we make, uh, where we build facilities, where we choose not to build facilities, how we treat housing um, is a classic example. So, I mean, one of the things that we're doing at the moment is we're saying that where new housing is built and a new school will be required, that school should be default um, integrated. Because if you don't do that, the housing will follow the, the school. And if you do that, the housing will also be integrated. Um, so it's things like that of actually saying, by making one choice, it has a knock-on effect in terms of creating segregated communities. And how do we then look at each decision and say, does that do it? Does that create segregation? If, if it does and it still has to be done, how do we mitigate it and how do we prevent that embedded, um, embedding? And if... If it's something that we can do differently, then let's do it differently and avoid the, the separation and segregation in the first place. And I just think if every department looked at that process, we could stop continuing down that route of becoming ever more separate as communities. 
Um, because I actually think if you look at the most vibrant communities, particularly in the context of urban environments, they're the ones that are the most integrated because people feel safe. Um, and safety is a major issue. And if people feel that they're safe, that they are respected, um, that they're able to participate fully in what's going on around them, then those communities become safer and more attractive. Um, and business flourishes and community flourishes and it's good all around. So if we can work on that basis, we can start to lift people um, out of the division, but also out of the poverty and the deprivation that goes along with that division, um, because I think they're all very much tied up together. That's a lovely, positive note on which to finish. Naomi Long, thank you very much indeed. I appreciate the time when you're such a busy minister. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Paul, appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Okay, that was Naomi Long there, leader of the Alliance Party. Paul, she touches, she's really strong, I think, on uh, the citizen engagement piece and the real importance of citizens' assemblies, their potential, but also the current rolling out of co-design um, within government departments. Yeah, and it's also very interesting contrasting this interview with last week's with Steve Aiken, who really felt that uh, it was too soon for us to talk about citizens' assemblies, and, and Naomi, who is much more positive about their role and about their use in terms of co-designing. And uh, I have to, I mean, it gives us a, a really interesting question about what is democracy? Is democracy simply putting an X or a number against your candidate, or is it actually being involved as a citizen in the way systems are designed uh, and demanding change? Uh, and I, I, I personally found Naomi's comments uh, uh, a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I suppose something that's also fresh or a new approach is uh, the approach taken by the Alliance Party that she's talking about, particularly, or not particularly, in the departments where they, they hold ministries, um, where all the policies that they're pushing through or that they put through are reviewed to make sure that they're not going to increase division within society. And if they are, that there's mitigation put in place to lessen that impact. I thought, and I thought that was a really interesting approach. Yeah, and uh, it, it's something that the Alliance Party has majored on for a number of years. Um, I think we do have to have a serious conversation about the impact of revenue spending by the different departments um, and whether that it treats all communities equally. And of course, the other point, which the, uh, the, the Alliance Party would very much say is, you know, we have more than two communities. And you know, the Good Friday Agreement was, was focused on balancing out the power structures between the two communities. But actually, our society is much more nuanced than that, much more spread. It's not simply two communities. It's a, a, a society of people from a variety of different backgrounds, and even people who would be regarded as having been attached to one or other communities. They've got very different life experiences. And we need to move towards seeing society as a whole, rather than simply seeing it as being segmented. Yep, we do, we do for sure. Okay, well, Paul, thank you for taking the time um, to talk to Naomi, and obviously, thanks to Naomi as well, a, a really interesting conversation. So that's it for this episode, and thanks to our funders of this podcast, the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland, and to Michael Barwise for doing the edit, and we'll talk to you again soon.